When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, hello. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. I'm Liv, your host who truly has the most wonderful listeners in the world. So I had such an amazing reception to the last episode, and I'm really grateful. As much as I like to speak my mind and be righteously angry, it can be a bit anxiety-inducing to address certain topics on the podcast. Last week's was the most I felt in a while, but did I have any bad reactions at all? No. Have I only had amazing support from all you badass people? Yes. 
So thank you. You're all really cool. First up, though, most importantly, your periodic reminder that I will be appearing at the Vancouver Fan Expo next month, February 15th to 17th. I'll be announcing more details soon on all my various platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all at MythsBaby. This is definitely one of the coolest things I've ever gotten to do and is absolutely the biggest event I've any I've ever been anywhere near when it comes to this podcast. So please, if you're in the area at all or you can get there, I hope you can come. I think there probably is an admission fee, but you get to see lots of other cool stuff in addition to me. So much fun nerd things. I'm personally excited. So I honestly really hope you do it. I'll be also selling some custom merch that I've had made for the event. It'll be some limited edition things that I had to pay for up front. So, you know, if you want to come buy some, that would be awesome. And I'll also just be there kind of like hanging out, ready to talk mythology or anything else. It's a great opportunity to just come chat with me, which I will be super open to doing. I'm also very open to talking other nerd shit because this is Fan Expo at all. after all. Lord of the Rings, maybe some Star Wars. Very open to explaining why The Last Jedi is awesome. Anyway, please come. Well... Today we're back to finish off the digression I began last week, the Epic of Gilgamesh. The first example of written literature, long before any examples from the Greeks or white people in general, from one of the most incredible ancient civilizations in human history, the Mesopotamians. Since last week's episode, I've heard from a listener who wanted to add and clarify something I spoke about last week. This, and something I'll mention later in the episode, has made clear to me that my research for this episode has been less than I would normally like. I made the decision to cover the Epic of Gilgamesh at the last minute because of all the shit that's gone down so far in 2020, and because of that, the extent of my information has only been this one edition I could find at my local bookstore and the internet, neither of which have been particularly insightful when it comes to like the traditions of Mesopotamia or reading below the surface of the epic, the kind of implications, and the... I don't, just the basic general information that is a bit more interesting than just the story itself. I normally really like to deep dive into my stories and I haven't been able to here, which is a damn shame. So hopefully I'll be able to do more on Mesopotamia soon and with that find some better, more comprehensive, wide-ranging sources. But in the meantime, I have some awesome listeners. So instead, I just wanted to read a note I received from a listener. I just got it yesterday, just right before I was finishing writing this, about the character of Shamhat from this last episode. So a listener named Jer wrote me, Hey Liv, I love your podcast. That part's cool. And I love that you're doing Gilgamesh. Can I make a suggestion on something you missed in it that I think you'll appreciate? I was honestly surprised that you missed it, but most people do. My understanding is that Shamhat wasn't just a sex worker. She was a priestess of Inanna slash Ishtar, and sex work was part of her holy religious work. I think this is really important because their relationship to sex was so radically different than later in Western culture, even in the same region. Instead of sex being a dirty, shameful, profane thing, it was, or at least could be, a holy thing practiced by priestesses. Her having sex with Enkidu didn't just tempt him to follow her, it literally civilized him to turn him from a person-shaped beast into a human being. This is especially interesting given Ishtar's later appearance wanting Gilgamesh to be her lover and the amazing shit-talking he gives to her, which no Greek mortal would ever do to a god and expect to live. So this note is fascinating, and while I'm sadly not in the position to confirm or deny, I just don't have time or the resources right now. Honestly, I've been working every day, and I got this message yesterday, but it's 
fascinating and I did think it was super important to read. I think that the note about sex in general in this civilization is pretty clearly true because nothing about Shamhat and Enkidu's relationship is treated as wrong or dirty in the works from what I've read. She's a woman performing a duty and that duty does Enkidu a lot of good. That much is super clear and it's so interesting to think of her as possibly a priestess of Ishtar as well. So Thank you, Jer. Seriously, I'm so glad you sent that in and you've made me want to dive deeper into Mesopotamia in the future. So with that, back to this epic of Gilgamesh. To remind you all, Enkidu was a wild man created to be an equal to Gilgamesh and was apparently civilized by an absolutely epic sex session with this woman, Shamhat. She's pretty fucking powerful, possibly the true hero of this story, unsung. I wrote that actually before receiving this message, so appropriate. Anyway, once Enkidu has fucked his way into humanity, Shamhat brings him to Uruk, where he eventually meets, through interesting circumstances, the king, Gilgamesh. They become besties, like, real quick. Where we last left our pals Gilgamesh and Enkidu, they'd traveled the long distance into the forest of cedars where they traveled to kill the giant monstrous Humbaba for reasons I'm still not entirely clear on. And they did. They killed him after much back and forth and humming and hawing. This is episode 70, Ancient Guys Doing Crazy Things, the Epic of Gilgamesh, Part 2. Once Gilgamesh has slain the giant Humbaba, the men celebrate. In celebration of what they've just accomplished, something I still don't understand the purpose of, they take to the forest of cedar whose guardian they've just killed. Of course, when you're in a forest and you've killed its natural defender, one must cut down the best of the trees. As a native Pacific Northwesterner, this part is a little painful and definitely excessive. But it's an ancient story, so I just must accept it. They cut down one of the tallest, probably the oldest, trees in the forest. A cedar tree that stretched high into the clouds. Once Enkidu and Gilgamesh have felled this beautiful, old, important tree, they set out to build a door. Yes, a door. Enkidu decides he will build an enormous door and set it to float down the Euphrates River, where, he says, it will travel to the house of Enlil, where the god will appreciate the gift and the men who built it. Enkidu and Gilgamesh cut down some more precious trees. They build themselves a raft so they too can take the Euphrates home. On the raft, they prepare to take some more cedar with them and Humbaba's head, which I can picture so clearly and it's pretty weird. Once they're ready to go, they clean themselves up, though it's Gilgamesh's process that gets the attention. He washes himself in the river, puts on some clean clothes, lays his hair down his back to dry, and finally places his crown atop his head. And all the while, Gilgamesh catches the attention of the goddess Ishtar, who seems to be watching them somewhat creepily from afar. Ishtar, you remember, is the goddess of love, sex, desire, but also of war and political power. She's basically Aphrodite and Athena, 
a true queen, a badass to defy all other badasses. Anyway, she's creeping on Gilgamesh, but finally she comes down and she asks him quite bluntly, Gilgamesh, you're super fucking hot. Would you marry me so we can have lots of sex? She's more eloquent than that, but this is her point. She tries to bribe him. Like, dude, I'll make you a chariot of lapis lazuli and gold, and wouldn't that be a badass chariot? You could drive lions and mules. A combo to beat all other combos. Seriously, don't you want to marry me? I'll give you such great shit. She goes on, promising some pretty bizarre stuff. A lot of it includes the general fertility of livestock. It's pretty appealing, I guess. Ishtar pulls out all the stops when trying to bribe Gilgamesh to marry her. He, though, isn't convinced. He has a lot to say in response. Honestly, most of it I just don't understand well enough to interpret to you. Again, I'll note this was written on clay tablets many thousands of years ago. At times it is hard to decipher the actual meaning. But I will bring up the note I read earlier from the listener. This is the moment when Ishtar comes down and Gilgamesh is uh uh-uh. So he eventually calls upon her history with others when determining that, nah, he does not think this is such a good idea. He names a bunch of ex-lovers that it seems she didn't have awesome relationships with. She's a bit like the Greek gods in this respect. He's got a lot of examples of her not treating people particularly well. A great many of these examples are animals, too. Not sure that that means she loved these animals, but Gilgamesh names quite the collection regardless. Instead of responding directly to Gilgamesh's claims about her, as soon as Ishtar hears all of this, she heads straight home to her godparents and complains about what he's said. Again, very much like the Greek gods here. I can see where they got it. Feeling very wronged and scorned. Ishtar goes to her parents and complains about what Gilgamesh has said to her, the scurrilous claims he's made. In her anger at Gilgamesh, Ishtar asks her father, Anu, to give her the Bull of Heaven to punish Gilgamesh. The exact details of the Bull of Heaven are unclear, but it's ominous as hell. Immediately, Anu is like, nah, you cannot have that. It is too dangerous. And didn't you kind of ask for this from Gilgamesh? You asked him to be with you, and he told you why he didn't want to. Seems pretty reasonable. But Ishtar is not feeling reasonable here. When her father tells her she can't have the Bull of Heaven, Ishtar tells him that if he doesn't give it to her, she'll raise the dead so they can go and kill humans. Hard fucking core. But she seems a bit over the top right now. I mean, threatening zombies is a pretty intense way to get what you want. But it works. Ishtar threatening to set zombies on humanity is enough for Anu to give in to her initial, seemingly less destructive, request of the Bull of Heaven. Ishtar brings the Bull of Heaven down into the city of Uruk, which, it seems, Gilgamesh and Enkidu have safely been returned to. But this isn't just a bull. No, it does some real and unexpected damage. When the bull arrives in Uruk, it creates a major drought in the city. Everything dries up, including much of the Euphrates, whose level is reduced dramatically. And not only that, but when this bull snorts, a pit opens up in the earth, sinkhole style, and within a couple of snorts, 300 men of Uruk have fallen into the pits and died. Even Enkidu falls in at one point, but only halfway, so he's able to pull himself from the pit. Once they realize the threat posed by this bull, Gilgamesh and Enkidu band together to defeat it. 
battles and the like are not the focus of this epic, so honestly, it's pretty easy. They work together, that much is key. But when both of them set to work, the pair easily defeat this bull. Once defeated, the men visit Shamash, Gilgamesh's mother, goddess, to show her what's happened. Ishtar is there too, though. She's pissed they killed her bull. But Enkidu, well, he's pissed also. So when Ishtar arrives to yell at them, he takes a leg from the bull and he throws it at her. Again, the visuals here are just awesome. Gilgamesh and Enkidu celebrate their victory that night before they finally go to sleep. Which leads me to... So, similarly to earlier, since I posted the first part of the story, another thing I've learned from listeners is that the Epic of Gilgamesh is possibly the first recorded example of a same-sex relationship, obviously between Gilgamesh and Enkidu. But not surprisingly, it's quite difficult to find concrete examples both in the translations or even just concrete references in articles, etc. I'm sure there are some if I had more access to academic writing, but sadly I don't. I have to live like a plebeian. In any event, I absolutely believe that to be true. It seems incredibly likely that references that are more direct would be translated in a way to make them seem less obvious, because often the people doing the translations aren't necessarily down with that kind of representation. (coughs) Old white men. That's all to say, I think Gilgamesh and Enkidu absolutely have a kind of like Achilles and Patroclus kind of thing going on, you know, like just how the Iliad is translated to be not necessarily a very sexual and passionate relationship that we all know it probably was. Their friendship is pretty intense. As soon as they meet, neither is referenced as having sex with another woman afterwards, something they both did extensively before they met. All signs point to a romantic relationship between them. I just want to make sure I noted that, even if I wasn't able to include any direct instances in the story. Because, see, this translation says they go to sleep in their beds, but that Enkidu has a bad dream, and when he wakes, he immediately relays it to Gilgamesh. To me, this suggests that they were probably sharing the same bed, especially if, as soon as he wakes up, Enkidu is telling Gilgamesh about his dreams, something Gilgamesh did with Enkidu as they traveled to the Forest of Cedars in the first place. Enkidu tells Gilgamesh that he dreamt of meeting with the gods, that they discussed what happened to the Bull of Heaven. The gods were talking about how to punish Gilgamesh and Enkidu for what they've done, and that Anu said that because of their killing of Humbaba and then the Bull of Heaven, that certainly one of them must die. In his dream, Shamash stood up for Enkidu against the gods, but they outvote her. Then the god Enlil suggests that it should be Enkidu who dies, not the king Gilgamesh. Enkidu lies down with Gilgamesh, crying as he tells him about the dream and how he fears he's meant to die. In this translation I have, he cries because he'll never again get to set eyes on his, quote, brother. But that all seems a bit of a stretch, given literally everything about this moment is pretty intimate. Anyway, grain of salt with this translator I have. Gilgamesh and Enkidu absolutely seem like Patroclus and Achilles, let's be honest. The pair go back to sleep. Once Gilgamesh has done his best to comfort Enkidu, just as Enkidu did on their journey to the forest of cedars, but when he next wakes up, Enkidu is delirious. He's hallucinating. The door he made from the cedar wood after killing of Humbaba is there, and it's speaking with him. 
Gilgamesh wakes to this to his friend who is probably his boyfriend, hallucinating and feverish. Enkidu is pleading with this door before Gilgamesh can finally get his attention and try to pull him from his hallucination. Once he's registered Gilgamesh is there with him, Enkidu's pleading changes. He begins calling out to the gods, as Gilgamesh does too, Gilgamesh pleading for Enkidu's life, Enkidu, though, he turns his hatred to the first people he encountered all that time ago. He rages against the trapper who discovered him in the forest, and Shamhat, the woman who civilized him in the first place, and definitely doesn't deserve any of the hate in this scenario. But feverish people can be unreasonable. Meanwhile, Shamash, Gilgamesh's mother and the goddess on their side, hears Enkidu's curses and makes him rethink his hatred. Why are you blaming Shamhat? she asks. Without her, you wouldn't have all you have now. You would have never met your beloved Gilgamesh, who will be with you all the way until the end. Shamash tells Enkidu that Gilgamesh will stay by his side, and then, as king of Uruk, position him as best he can for his journey through the underworld, that the gods of the underworld will kiss his feet. Shamash continues, telling Enkidu what a state Gilgamesh will be in if he dies, how the entire city of Uruk will mourn him, but Gilgamesh will most of all. Shamash has convinced Enkidu, and so he lets out a lengthy apology to Shamhat, who is, of course, not actually around to hear it. He apologizes, telling her what better life she will have, that he will make it happen. He even says that he'll have Ishtar give Shamhat a place in the house of the wealthiest man in the city, and that this man will abandon his current wife, who's had his seven children, in order to be with Shamhat. Anyway, seems all very unnecessary and pretty mean to this other woman. I mean, it's not her fault. It's a weird statement, but entertaining, so I just had to share it. Shamhat is again not there, so not sure how this would go down, but then Enkidu is dying, so we'll let him have it. Enkidu recounts to Gilgamesh another dream he's had, another disturbing, distressing dream. He tells Gilgamesh that he dreamed he was amongst the gods and attacked by a monstrous creature he didn't understand. He dreamed that he called out to Gilgamesh for his help and that Gilgamesh reached out to him but transformed him into a dove. Then he travels. He dreams he encounters the gods of the underworld, the palace of darkness that no one ever returns from. There, in the world of the dead, people eat clay and they have feathers like birds. So a bit different from the ancient Greek underworld, though no less interesting. Enkidu continues to recount this world of the dead, this house of dust and darkness. The people he encounters in his dreams, past kings and servants and priests, all in the world of the dead. Finally, he begs Gilgamesh to remember him, not to forget his friend and probably boyfriend, Enkidu, when he's gone. Enkidu lies sick for days, growing weaker and closer to death with every one. There was surely a dramatic and emotional final death scene for this man, beloved of Gilgamesh, but it's never been found. Gilgamesh is a mess. He calls for all the world to mourn his loss, the people of Uruk, the animals of the forests where Enkidu grew up, even the trees and the rivers themselves, he asks to mourn the loss of his beloved Enkidu. This goes on for stanzas and stanzas of the epic. Gilgamesh calls to everyone and everything he can think of to mourn Enkidu. Finally, though, he knows it's over. Enkidu has died, 
He begins to mourn him truly, ripping out his hair and tearing off his jewelry, throwing it down. He sees the best metalsmith in all of Uruk. He wants a statue made of Enkidu. As this statue is prepared, Gilgamesh prepares Enkidu for the underworld. He pulls together all the gold and riches he can muster to send with him. Then he calls to all the goddesses to guide Enkidu to treat him well in death. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
With Enkidu dead, Gilgamesh doesn't know what to do with himself. He's lost without his friend and worried about his own mortality. So he wanders. He leaves the city of Uruk and he wanders. He decides he wants to find the immortal Udanapishti, who possesses secrets of the world that Gilgamesh desperately hopes to learn. He wanders pretty aimlessly before his mother steps in to ask her son what he's doing. He can't bring Enkidu back, but Gilgamesh can't stop thinking about where his friend is now in the world of the dead. Do they ever get to see the sun? he asks his mother. So instead, he seeks the sun himself. In his search for the sun, he reaches the twin mountains that support the heavens and guard the sun. There's a gate to these twin mountains, and Gilgamesh arrives at it to find guarded by scorpion men. The men are terrifying. Their, quote, terror was dread, their glance was death. They see Gilgamesh approaching and wonder about him. They can tell he's part god, and they speak between each other discussing his relative godliness. Two-thirds, remember. The scorpion men ask Gilgamesh why he's there, what could bring him to their mountains that no other man has ever reached, let alone passed. He tells them about his search for the immortal Utanapishti, that he has questions. They discuss Gilgamesh's plan and how hard it is to pass the mountains because of the sun and the darkness. But most of that portion of the poem is lost, so it's hard to interpret. In the end, though, they allow Gilgamesh to pass. The darkness descends quickly and completely. Because of these mountains' role in supporting the heavens, the dark, when it is dark, is complete. Gilgamesh can't see anything in front of him or behind, and this lasts 12 hours. He travels, but he doesn't know where or what's around him. He just hopes he's on the right track and not about to encounter something that could hurt him. Finally, it's light, and Gilgamesh continues on. But he's spotted by a goddess who runs a tavern by the seaside, which is pretty fucking cool. She worries he's a hunter, and so she tries to prevent him from continuing on, and certainly from entering her land. She asks him why he's there. Is he a hunter of wild bulls? Gilgamesh, in turn, tells her the whole story, what he and Enkidu have done together, and when she asks why so successful a hero could look so tired and awful, he tells her about Enkidu's death and how very empty he is now without him, how he's searching for Udanapishti to learn the secrets. He tells her his story in its most depressing of details, and so when he asks which way to Udanapishti, the goddess and tavern keeper is happy to tell him where to go next. Sob stories can do wonders. But it's fruitless, she tells Gilgamesh. The waters of death lie between them and Udanapishti. And even if Gilgamesh were able to cross, which only Shamash and the god of the sun can do, what would he do then? No, you shouldn't do it, she tells him. But hey, also, there is Udanapishti's boatman and the stone ones, just in case you're feeling like an idiot. If he'll take you across, go with him across the waters of death. If not, just go home. Gilgamesh is eager, and he arms himself with all his weapons before rushing down to the boatman and the stone ones. He attacks them, which I don't understand, but he does. He takes out the stone ones completely and pins the boatman down before finally letting him go. But there seems to be no lasting animosity between them, because Gilgamesh is asked once more why he looks so awful. 
So again, Gilgamesh tells the boatman the story of what he and Enkidu did together and of the death of Enkidu. This version, though, Gilgamesh adds the detail that he wouldn't let Enkidu's body be buried, not for seven days, not until a maggot dropped out of Enkidu's nose. Gross. So Gilgamesh tells the boatman what he wants, that he must cross the waters of death so he can seek Udanapishti. Oh, you ruined the prospect of that ever happening, the boatman tells Gilgamesh bluntly. You smashed the stone ones. They were the only ones able to enter the waters of death unaffected by the, you know, death. Look, he says, if you go cut down 300 trees and prepare them, we can build ourselves a new boat and the means of getting across the waters of death. And Gilgamesh, he does this. He does exactly what he's asked. And so it doesn't seem like all that impossible at all. And it takes like, I don't know, two lines of poetry. The two of them crew the boat and sail across the waters of death, a journey that takes a month and a half. Finally, they reach the other side and they're spotted by Udanapishti. But something is wrong, and so Udanapishti is hesitant. The stone ones are smashed, and who is this man on the ship that I don't recognize? He asks. Udanapishti asks Gilgamesh why he looks so awful, and Gilgamesh tells him the whole story. And when I say this, and the previous times, know that it is entirely repeated in the text, like it's exactly the same paragraphs from the people asking Gilgamesh why he looks so haggard, and the same responses from Gilgamesh about why shouldn't he look so haggard, and also about the death of his friend. The repetition probably comes from the oral tradition of these ancient civilizations, where it comes across more like a song when these pieces are repeated. It would also be much easier to remember. Of course, though, when we try to read it now, it just seems excessive. Anyway, the same story is regaled to Udanapishti about Gilgamesh's life with Enkidu, as well as Enkidu's death and the resulting travels of Gilgamesh. To Udanapishti, though, Gilgamesh emphasizes the ultimate reason he's come. He fears his own death now that Enkidu is gone. Will he, one day, cease to exist just as his beloved does now? Udanapishti is wise, and he has some strong words for Gilgamesh. Why do you, quote, chase sorrow? he asks him. He questions Gilgamesh's actions all throughout. Why make your way all the way here? Why worry so much? You are the king, he reminds Gilgamesh. You are needed in your city. Without you, they are missing so much. In great detail, Udanapishti reminds Gilgamesh of his responsibilities as king before launching into an examination of death itself. He tells of the time that he sat in on an assembly of the gods when they determined how fate and death would function in the world. How it isn't to be feared, it comes for everyone, but how one mustn't spend their time worrying about when or how. Gilgamesh is not having it. He feels that he and Udanapishti are no different, and so who is this man to tell him so much about himself, to tell him how he should be, and that he should not dwell on death or fear it? Are we so different? Gilgamesh asks Udanapishti. You look just like me. We're the same. How did you sit in an assembly of the gods? How did you attain the immortality you have now? I will tell you a secret of the gods, Udanapishti tells Gilgamesh. There was once a city called Shurupak. It was very old on the banks of the Euphrates, and the gods were there. But the god Enlil decided to send a deluge, a flood, to punish humanity for its ills. One of the gods, Ea, spoke to me from above, 
He told me to prepare, to build a ship, and to put on that ship seeds from all living things and all the living things I could find, to preserve what I could of the city, the animals, the world itself. An ark, you might call it. And then the rains came, covering the entire earth with water. And not just water, but a terrible storm with horrible winds and waves crashing. A truly deadly storm. Everything was submerged. Everything except the ship. The ark. They don't call it that, but I'm really spelling it out for you guys. Even the gods were afraid of this storm and mourned what it did to humanity that they themselves had put together. The storm lasted six days and seven nights before the wind finally died down and the deluge ended. I went above deck, Udinapishti tells Gilgamesh, and saw what had been done. All of humanity turned to clay and before me only water. But slowly, islands began to rise up from the sea, mountains. The ship ran aground on one of these islands and for a few days they held tight, waiting. Finally, a dove was set free into the sky from the ship, but it came back. There was still nowhere for it to land. Udinapishti explains that he did this with a swallow next, but the same thing happened. Nowhere to land, and it returns. Then a raven. The raven doesn't return. It had been able to find food on its own. So, Udinapishti sets out to appease the gods. He provides an offering, all that he has to give them. And all the gods arrived, all except Enlil, who had brought the floods in the first place. Udinapishti hoped he wouldn't come to the offering, but in time, Enlil did arrive, and he was furious. How did this man survive? he called to the other gods. Who helped him? The gods all knew that it had been Ea. If it were anyone, it would be him. And so he spoke up, calling Enlil out on his dumbass plan. Why would you cause a deluge and kill everybody, he asks. You could have done so many other things to lessen the population without taking out everyone. Ea lists some options Enlil could have gone with. Lions. A plague. So many alternatives to killing literally everyone and everything. Fine. Enlil agrees. It was kind of dumb. And so, in return for Udinapishti and, bonus, his wife's survival of the Great Deluge, Enlil grants them immortality and a new home where the rivers flow. After finishing his story of the Deluge, Udinapishti, if half-heartedly, offers the possibility of immortality to Gilgamesh. Who will convene the gods, though? he asks. If you can stay awake for six days and seven nights, maybe we can talk. But before he can even finish his sentence, Gilgamesh has fallen asleep. And he stays asleep for six days and seven nights. <laughs> when Gilgamesh finally wakes up, Udinapishti is entertained. Gilgamesh doesn't believe that he really has been asleep that long. To him, it felt as though he'd only just shut his eyes. But Udinapishti had receipts. He'd laid out a loaf of bread every day since Gilgamesh fell asleep. And so there were varying levels of gross bread to show Gilgamesh as proof of just how long he'd been out. Udinapishti is done with Gilgamesh now. He's over this man demanding immortality, who showed up out of nowhere and can't stay awake. Along with his ferryman, he sets Gilgamesh on his way back to Uruk. He gives him a bath, some new clothes that magically won't get dirty on the journey home, and he sets the two men on their way. 
But just as Gilgamesh and the ferrymen push off from Udinapishti's shores, his wife gives him a nudge. Gilgamesh came all this way, she says, and you're not going to give him anything? <sighs> with a sigh, Udinapishti reaches out with a piece of wood, yanking their ship back. Ugh, fine, he says. Since you came all this way, I'll tell you a secret of the gods. There's a plant. It's prickly, mind you, but if you get a hold of it, you can use it to restore your youth. In an instant, a channel is opened up in the sea. Gilgamesh uses stones tied to his feet to travel to the bottom of the ocean where he finds the plant. And bam, he's back on land and he's got this magical plant. I want to understand this part, but I don't. It happened very quickly, very anticlimactically. Anyway, he's got this crazy plant now, so lucky. And with that, Gilgamesh and the ferrymen finally begin to make their way back to Uruk. Gilgamesh in possession of this magical plant that he intends to use on the elders of the city and then on himself to restore all of their youths. But along the way, midway through their journey, Gilgamesh is taking a bath in a stream. The plant is nearby, and a snake smells it. The snake steals the plant. Gilgamesh is distraught, but there's nothing to be done. The men make their way, finally, back to Uruk, empty-handed. Oh, friends, this is the end. This is the end of the version of the Epic of Gilgamesh that I have. There's apparently an additional tablet, but it's pretty separated from this story, so I won't try to delve into it or explain it. It ends, interestingly, this one, just, uh, I mean, I guess happy endings aren't totally timeless, and I I respect that. Like I said at the top, this has taught me that I'd very much like to find the means to research this story further and the Mesopotamians further in general. I'm sure there's so much more to say that I don't know, but my knowledge and my sources are pretty limited to Greece and Rome. I wanted to do this one because I think it's important to emphasize how vital non-Western works are and were to the development of literature as we know it. One day I'd like to do a more thorough version, but for now I'm just glad I did it, even if it had to be less research than I'm usually able to do. Thank you all, though, who've reached out about it and pointed out things to me that I missed during the first half. I was so, I'm was i so glad I was able to read the message I got about Shamhat and to realize the obvious relationship between Gilgamesh and Enkidu that may not have occurred to me just by reading this meh translation. Also, of course, the flood. It's important to talk about the flood. This is the first instance, as far as I know, of a flood story. Ooh, Egypt has one, too. I don't know which one came first. One day, maybe I'll cover the Egypt one, and there's a Greek one. Basically, so many versions of the story of Noah's Ark long, 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 long before the bible what anyway i'm so lucky to have such awesome listeners that add to these stories making them better and even more interesting i'm thrilled this was able to happen this way you're all wonderful thank you again i'll be back next week with aeneas for real this time i am Liv, and i truly love this shit When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol the danger they endured.
They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.